The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. From the news team at LinkedIn, I'm Jesse Hempel, and this is Hello Monday. Three years ago, I went to Miami to record an episode of Hello Monday live at a digital media conference. My guest for that episode was Elise Lunin, who back then was number two at Goop, a media juggernaut, a women's media juggernaut to be specific. The audience was mostly dudes, and to be honest, they didn't get us. But over a couple of days in Miami, Elise and I got time for long chats about everything from our careers to whether we trusted our intuition to what we were learning about parenting. Did I mention that was my very first business trip away from Jude? He was still so tiny back then. Anyhow, that was a formative few days for me. In the mornings, I holed up in my hotel room and finished the book proposal for what would become the family outing. As it turns out, it was a pretty important event for Elise, too. On the flight home, she came up with a book idea. Not long after that, she left Goop to write the book and it has just come out. It's called On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good. And it's all about how we all unwittingly hold up the patriarchy and what we can each do in our own lives to stop. I love Elise's book. She breaks down patriarchy. With confidence and vulnerability, Elise suggests that from very early times, we've all been programmed to obey certain rules She maps these rules to the seven capital vices and then reveals how they play out in our lives right now. In our attempt to be good, to avoid these sins like envy and sloth and greed, we sacrifice so much. And in the end, we hurt ourselves and each other. Elise's book is an invitation to reclaim the things we sacrifice to fit in and in so doing to rise into truer versions of ourselves. Here's Elise. Patriarchy sounds like a bogeyman, right? Like it's who, who, what is it? How does it show up in my life? And these are subconscious beliefs. We might be, we might be aware of them or the contours of some of them, but I don't think that we're, we've been conscious of how deeply they've entrenched, but become entrenched in our own psyches. And that's, that was a revelation for me was to actually find it in myself Mm-hmm. And to recognize the ways that these sins, even though I am, I did not grow up in a religious household, I had to look them up to understand what they were, to remind myself the way that these sins are a pretty perfect map to all the ways in which we constrain and corral ourselves and then each other. And again, I don't think it's conscious, but I think once you see it, you can unsee it. That's, that's my hope for the book. Um, that's a beautiful thought. And I just I want to take a second to say, um, we know we talk on this show, we have very sophisticated listeners, both male and female listeners who understand that we are all steeped in the values, conscious and unconscious that we grow up in and come up in. And it leaves us somewhat stymied. So you take this framework on um, these seven deadly sins, although as you point out, you're actually talking about eight, we kind of left one off the table mm-hmm. somewhere along the line. 
as, as a map for how to think about the ways in which this shows up in us. And before I pass the mic to you, I just want to say, when I say us, I mean men and women. Mm-hmm. This is a book written about the feminine experience and feminine energy, but with an invitation for all of us, men and women, to nurture the rising feminine energy, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, a thousand percent. And I hope that men feel invited to read it and that they see themselves um, in it as much as they, I think, come to understand people who identify as women more. It is about what I think we're all recognizing but haven't quite stepped into as completely as a culture, which is that masculine and feminine energy is present in each of us, regardless of gender. It's not, these are not gendered qualities. They are universal qualities. We're moving in that direction, I think, where people understand that. I, as a person who identifies as a woman, I have a lot of masculine energy. I've always had a lot of masculine energy. Um, And I try to cultivate my feminine, to be honest. But I think that's partly one of the reasons that I could write a book like this is observing culture from a distance and observing some feminine qualities that have always felt like more of a put on for me or harder to sort of naturally come by. Uh, give me an example of something like that for you. Um, I would say that I have I have two little boys, nine and six, and I love them, but I am not what I would call, and this this concept is pernicious. It doesn't really exist except as a cultural idea, but I don't think of myself as a natural mother. Um, it's not... It's not something that I grew up wanting necessarily to be, and I love my kids, and I love being their mother, their parent, really, but I never had, I never identified with that cultural identity in the way that I think it was fed to a lot of us, primarily like when you and I were growing up. I think it's gotten better, but that wasn't my, my dream. Every chapter of Elise's book feels personal, an invitation to look closely at an emotion that makes me uncomfortable. In this episode, we're going to talk about some of those feelings. The first, well, it's one I don't like to acknowledge in myself. Like, if you ask me directly if I'm feeling it towards someone, I'll probably deny it, even now. Andy is... Uh, an emotion, something that I think a lot of women in particular suppress because it it's, feels so dark and gross. But it's when we want something that someone else has for themselves. Jealousy, on the other hand, typically requires a third. So it might show up more in relationships. That's typically where we use it, where you're competing for an object or a person maybe with someone else. But Jealousy, I think maybe because of those connotations, is a little bit more socially acceptable, and we typically say that instead of envy. Envy just sounds bad. Gross. It sounds gross. And I think that women in particular, at least I can put myself in this boat, I think because it feels so bad, we repress it. Before it comes up, we don't even recognize that that's what we're feeling. We just shove it down into the shadow And the genesis for the book actually was envy because I was talking to therapist Lori Gottlieb, who wrote that book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. And there was this small moment in her book, and I was interviewing her, but it had jumped out at me. And it said effectively that she tells her patients, her clients to pay attention to their envy because it shows them what they want. And I was like, whoa, whoa. 
(laughs) Whoa. And I asked her about it and we talked about it and I asked her if it was gendered and she said that she didn't know for sure, she didn't have the data, but that she would assume that it largely is because women are uncomfortable with emotions, feelings that we think are unacceptable. And so I sat with that for months actually and was looking, I was like, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the source of a lot of the internalized misogyny that we see in culture, the reason that women struggle to vote for other women, why when we look at studies from the workplace, women typically are almost as hard on other women as men. Yeah. As much as we want to blame men or turn this into a gender battle, I think we can all recognize that we're really hard on other women. Right. I would say even often harder, harder. at least in my experience. Yes, unfortunately. Yeah. And that's really hard to admit, right? And I feel like we're trying to push against that with our sort of hashtag women supporting women, which invariably almost, I'm like, let's not use that because it just draws attention to the fact that this is a thing. But it it's true, right? I started with envy because I, I thought that maybe that was it. Maybe that was the iceberg that we were trying to move around. And I would find this in myself. I'm not proclaiming that I can operate aside from any of these either. That I would see a woman doing something that I wanted for myself. I would see other women writing books, um, succeeding in thought leadership. And I would be looking for reasons to criticize them or judge them. yeah. And I realized in that moment that sort of I don't like her was really undiagnosed envy and that that woman was pushing on a dream that I had for myself. And there was amazing information in that once I actually let it come up, which is hard to do. It feels bad and it can feel like a mirror, a reflection back to you of what maybe you haven't achieved in your life. But it certainly points the way to what you would like to achieve in your life. And I think it also points the way to what's actually possible if you choose to embrace it. Well, you know, before you ever get to the question of whether you can achieve something, you need to be able to identify it, right? And, And thinking about envy as a tool for identifying what we want is interesting to me because the truth is, like, I mostly don't know what I want. Even at this point in my life when I think I've got a fully developed sense of self and have experienced enough success to believe that I can go for it if I can just name it, I still am not quite brave enough, honestly, Elise, to allow myself to know what it is. Interesting. Have you, as you scanned the horizon of people doing what you do, is there anyone where you're like, oh, that person is bothering me? There are so many people who bother me, and I will use somebody who I've had on this show. I feel it not as envy, but as like as deep, deep, deep discomfort. I can have Matthew McConaughey on this show with complete ease mm-hmm. and talk to him for hours. I had Roxanne Gay on this show and mm. was tongue-tied. I could not push words out of my mouth because she swims in a lane that I would kill to qualify myself as belonging in. And I love everything she does, so much so that I was unable to pull it together to create a conversation with her that I loved. That's the reflection for me of it, it points me to, oh, well, maybe maybe there's something in that experience that I want. Now, here's the thing. Where are the tools that allow me, especially for people like that, 
to rise to the challenge of getting fully behind them, right? Because actually getting fully behind them is the way that I support myself in wanting that thing. Yeah. I I don't know if you've heard this. This might be an, an L.A. thing and sort of in the more new agey community. But um, has anyone told you that you're an expander for them? I mean, I read that part in your book and I totally at least thought, <laughs> oh, that must be an L.A. thing. It's an L.A. thing, I think. <laughs> I haven't heard of it. All right. Well, wait, you're going to start hearing people saying that you're an expander. And it's this woman who does manifestation courses. Her name's Lacey Phillips. And her point is we're not manifesting yachts here. Um, It's actually, she works with a neuroscientist. It's about examining limiting subconscious beliefs. And her point, particularly in the context of envy, is that many of us are raised, and you could say that the entire patriarchal culture is what we're raised in, to believe that maybe there's only one woman on that board or there will only be one or two women in the executive team. We're fed a daily toxic soup of scarcity and that certain things, depending on where we grew up, are completely out of reach. One of the ways to identify that and then get it out of your subconscious is to find people who are doing what you want to be doing even if it's on a stage or at a scale that is inconceivable and you use them as an expander, it's like a door hinge, right? It's just one corner of a way into imagining this for yourself. And sometimes she talks about it as a a mechanism for showing yourself that maybe you don't want it after all. Like you watch someone running a restaurant and you're like, oh, actually pick a different thing. So it's just, it's homework. But useful homework in terms of training your mind to imagine that, yes, that's possible. If that person can do it, I can do it too. And I'm going to not do exactly what they're doing to to do it, but understand the trajectory as a way of just reinforming myself over and over again that it's not impossible. It's probable. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Debbie Millman talks about it, but it doesn't belong to her, this idea of a 10-year plan. Mm sitting down and writing out a dream of what a life could look like in 10 years as the first step, right? Because 10 years is long enough into the future that you don't get sort of caught up in the possibility that you would actually have to operationalize anything that you write down in the near term. But identifying that wanting even, I think is, I feel like we have so much shame around that. I certainly do. You know, I've been doing that now as a practice, not a 10-year plan, but just what do I want? What do I want? As my book comes out, what do I want? And where do I want to be in five years? And just putting it in a place where no one will ever find it. You can burn it. But just getting in touch with that wanting, even if you voice memo it sort of while moving around a room, I think is something that not a lot of women have been condition to do. I don't know if men have, but there's less scarcity to inform their thinking. But I think it's an essential act for women to be to actually access, touch, and translate what you want. And it can change, right. but I don't think women are doing it. Well, and Elise, look, as we have this conversation, I think it's also just important to resurface the idea that 
this conversation is not meant to be binary. We all have aspects of gender flowing through our body. I can think of many male listeners who I could name on two hands who would say, yeah, actually, I connect to that as well. But let's talk about pride a second. It was pretty significant to me to really question myself about whether I felt permission to feel good about the things that I have created and done in the world. And here's the thing, Elise. I don't. I would like you to name them. I'm not comfortable saying them. Um, Talk to me about that. Yeah. This is real, right? And I think particularly in a culture now that's so, you know, all we want to do is diagnose each other as narcissistic and take personality quizzes, et cetera. But I think that this idea of being too big for your britches, at all costs be humble, um, this is programming that runs deep in many of us. So many of the sins are just careening into each other. Um, And in conversations with women sort of in circles about this book, they've said, I am really careful. I don't want people to know what I'm achieving. I don't put it on LinkedIn. I don't promote the fact that I got a promotion because I don't want to inspire envy. And there is this unfortunate pattern recognition, I think, amongst women that if you get too high, if you get too far up that mountain, someone's going to take you down. We see it all over the place. We see it amongst, obviously, all over the world of VC with um, female founders. We see it all over Hollywood. There's nothing that our culture likes more than to put a woman in her place. Yeah. And it's pretty pathological, actually, when we stop and look at it. But yet it's important to recognize that, again, going back to how we're programmed, this isn't in our conscious awareness. All most of us see is just a battlefield of fallen women who dared to have a dream for themselves and dared to make a go at it. It's like a good friend of mine has got a massive promotion. She's running a company that we care about. It's within sort of creative arts. And she was promoted to president and she intends to tell no one. It's wild, actually. It's pathological. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, Elise, it seems to me like um, the problem with pride is that it makes women less likable. Yep. And we need to be likable in order to be successful in a patriarchal framework. Yes. Essentially, the way that we are raised is that relationships are primary and essential. And I'm not saying that this isn't true. We're recognizing this, like how desperately men lack and need relationships. But women are trained to prioritize relational being is the most important thing to be excluded, to be cast out, to be disinvited, defriended is essentially like death. And we want to do very little to upset the status quo or to stand out. In fact, standing out to be a social pariah in any way is tantamount to a bad end. Whereas men are conditioned for power, I would say, and to stand out, to lead, to be alpha, women are conditioned to support 
and to enable the success of other people. And it's not really helpful for us ultimately. Yeah. My hope with this book, and this is a a massive hope, is that it's enough of a framework that there are enough seeds planted culturally that we can identify it in ourselves and each other and then work against it where we are just sort of retraining ourselves again, just like maybe I'm a little envious um, rather than piling on, I'm going to understand exactly what's happening here and refrain or offer support instead um, rather than just participating in this social pylon, which can feel so good. It makes us feel better about ourselves. I get it. But I think the antidote is when a woman dares to be seen having her back so that it starts to be safe for other women to be seen as well. We're going to take a quick break here. As we do, I ask you to think about how envy and pride play out in your own relationships with other women. Can you convert your envy to support? Can you take pride in a recent accomplishment, even if it feels scary to say your success out loud? Consider joining our Hello Monday group on LinkedIn and exploring these ideas more in a community of people who are not afraid to say, hey, we've been there. Let's keep talking. When we come back, more with Elise Lunin. Stick around. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. And we're back. Today, we are digging deep into a series of uncomfortable feelings with author Elise Lunin. Next on our emotional tour is anger. Reading Elise's book, there's this thing that stuck out to me about the anger section. Women are often socialized to process conflict differently. Anger's tricky for us. A lot of us step back from it, and we can target it at each other from very young ages in this sort of insidious way that men don't because they don't have to. Here are Elise's thoughts on anger. Effectively, men, boys, it's okay for them to yell. It's okay for them to punch. It's okay for them to be overtly aggressive. And aggression is incredibly natural. And we're not saying that we want to condone it or promote it or that you want your child beating other kids on the playground. But with boys, there's a certain expectation that they will be vocal and physical about their dismay and about what they want and when they feel like their boundaries have been crossed. Girls, on the other hand, are conditioned for niceness, for goodness, for pliability. And 
girls don't yell, they don't hit, they don't push, or that's how we raise them. And so what happens is all that aggression, which is completely natural and normal and part of being human, gets suppressed, pushed into shadow, it becomes covert. And so it shows up in ways that I think that we would recognize, we would almost call them stereotypes, but whispering, gossip, um, sort of building yeah, alliances against other girls, exclusion, all of the things that we... All the things that make a middle school playground awful. Yes. Right? And, you know, as the parent of a girl and a boy, um, but, you know, a very young girl, she's two, all of that is up ahead of us. I'm already starting to think, well, how can I hold my daughter back from those awful dynamics, right? Yep. Um, but maybe it's culture that is actually laying the groundwork for that. Maybe maybe there isn't a way to do that. It's really hard because it is culture. This is the thing. Culture is contagious. We're looking for how to conform and belong. And so we learn it from each other. It's not that my parents, who are progressive hippies, were like, you can never yell. You can. You know, they weren't telling me these things. Right. But when I observed my peers and participated in school with my peers, that's the behavior that we saw. And this is one of the other themes of the book, which is this idea that there's nature and then there's culture. And often we conflate the two when really culture can drive nature or drive behavior. And so we would say, oh, girls are just not violent and they're just gentle and sweet. It's who they are, right? And it's like, right. well, actually, no, a lot of that, we don't really know. We'll never know because how do you ever test that? But a lot of it is how we are acculturated, what we're taught, what we see mirrored by both our mothers, other women, and girls. And so part of breaking or changing culture requires really coaching kids. This is how you have a conversation. Um, This is how you engage in conflict. This is how you express your needs. This is how you tell someone healthily how you're feeling. Yeah. And men, boys, again, would benefit from this as well. Um, But this isn't something we're taught. Well, there's also another aspect to conflict that I I notice around me in the workplace that I, I, frankly, am jealous of, which is that when I have a conflict with a male colleague, um, it usually results in a confrontation much earlier. Mm -hmm. And then it seems like they get over it much more quickly. It's sort of like, okay, let's have a beer and call it. And then it seems, at least, I perceive it to just go out of their mind. Yeah. When at least that is not my experience in the world. Yeah. Even if I can somehow manage the the face-to-face of, like, let's talk about this conflict, I hold on to it. It goes and it lives somewhere in my body, and I can't release it even when I want to. And that, to me, feels very gendered as well. Yes. You know, and as you mentioned, I grew up in women's magazines and worked primarily with women. And... Um, I went to work for this tech company that was primarily men, dramatically male. And it was a fascinating experience because my boss, they would yell. Like you would hear them like ripping into each other in meetings. I'm not saying that this is great, but it was like part of the culture. Right. And then it was over. And I remember asking my boss, like, there was some sort of very heated conversation and he was like, oh, we just, we don't, 
agree. I don't like, we're just never going to be friends, but like we work together. It wasn't a personal, <laughs> I don't know. It was an interesting experience because yeah. where I had come from, it was much more covert and slightly more um, malicious. It was undiagnosed again, not something that you would see, but you would just notice that someone wasn't getting pages or they weren't getting good stories or it was never addressed. It was never um, vocal, you know? Well, and we're so relational. Like the idea of not being friends with somebody that I work with suggests to me there's a problem that needs fixing. Yeah. I think it's really important because I think it it gets messy, like one, that you must be friends with everyone. And I think that there you can be acquaintances with people. You can have nice work relationships where you're excited to see them, but they don't know, they're not privy to the intimate details of your life. I think obviously with the pandemic, we saw the problem of thinking that people are your family, the people you work with, the way that many companies, the culture is familial. No, they're not your family. And then transactional relationships too, where you're like, we get along, we need to work well together. Um, There's a certain cordiality. I do my job, they do their job, but there's not an expectation that this person's going to go to your wedding or you're going to still be in touch in 20 years. But I think because it's all lumped into relationship. Right. And we don't think about these nuances, that there's a lot of heartbreak and disappointment that comes from that. Well, you know, so this idea about anger, um, that it was interesting to me how in your book, anger sort of flowed very organically into your last thought, which was not one of the seven, but was in fact an eighth idea Mm. that somehow we just pushed out of our mind over thousands of years. Um, which is the significance of sadness. Yes. And often, by the way, when I am angry and I peel that anger away, where I land is sadness. Yes. It's usually, anger is usually a mirage for fear, sadness, and shame. And I think it's often sadness. And I think the etymology of anger is grief. Yeah. Um, and it's it's at the root, I think, of of everything in a way. And yes, it was on the list. The sins were first written down by this desert monk, Evagrius Ponticus. He wrote these thoughts down, demonic thoughts, but not demons in the way that we would think of them today, but more as distracting thoughts. And sadness was on this list, melancholy. And when they became the cardinal vices, which wasn't until the sixth century, so hundreds of years later, They'd sort of made their way through the Desert Fathers. Sadness wasn't there. It was sort of absorbed by sloth, which was this idea of apathy. And I think the fact that sadness is not there is incredibly important. And I think, again, to go to these ideas of masculine and feminine energy, that sadness, the unexpressed feeling, and being severed from our emotions is the root of toxic masculinity. Um, And I think what we have when we have men, primarily men, although there are certainly women who can be very toxically masculine, that at the heart of it is a dislocation from their emotions and an inability to feel. I mean, we see this a lot in culture, men very, very masculine men who are very in their potentially toxically masculine men 
who have these immense healings and this reconnection to themselves, to the world, to the planet, to their feminine. And I think sadness, the fact that it's not on that list is striking to me. Yeah, uh, absorbed into sloth. It's it's sort of like this idea that um, we'd rather just like block the existence of it altogether. Let's just block it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. When you think about doing the work on oneself, you've done it 10x. What tools has it given you so far and what's ahead for you? Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's given me um, an understanding. And I think anyone who meditates, and I'm a terrible meditator, but anyone who meditates and has a sense of themselves as separate or is able to study themselves um, is in almost the same place because it requires a little bit of objectivity about who you are and what's informing and acting on you. And it took me a minute to get there, but it's actually, I think once people make that step or leap or are already even there, then you can start to pull it apart and distinguish what is me and what is the me that I'm supposed to be, what's in this chasm, what is sitting on my chest. And, you know, I opened the book talking about I'm a, a chronic hyperventilator, although it's it has gotten much better. But I remember this period pre-pandemic, but where I was hyperventilating, I think I ended up going two months, this chronic hyperventilating where I'm over breathing and I'm yawning by one o'clock. I mean, it's exhausting just thinking about it. And this feeling of like no amount of therapy, breath work, that was driving a lot of this self-examination. Like, what is this? And um, for me, it was a conversation with my therapist where he was essentially like, you're not, you're never going to outrun this. It's not a thing. It is all of these ideas that you have that you're not lovable, despite working incredibly hard in all spheres of my life to be really good and doing the thing and then finding no relief. And so for me, this book was a massive act of therapy. I had to examine each of these sins in my life. I had to go deep into my relationship with my body for many of them, for gluttony, for lust. I had to examine all of my relationships to scarcity and money and I'll never, and this really this idea of not having enough. And I did a lot of that work alone. I did a lot of that work in books, really. I mean, I read pretty compulsively, but I read compulsively for this book as well, just to understand the experience of other women. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's funny, like so much of my searching, I've sort of, no, I haven't stopped that. I still do some things, but I I primarily do it now through books and through going really deep Mm -hmm. with different people where I feel like I'm like catching threads of something that feels resonant and true to me. And I've sort of translated, partly through COVID too, but translated it from going somewhere to have the experience to recognizing like this is internal alchemy. You know, when I first met you, your super skill was that you were a midwife for other people's brilliant ideas, Mm -hmm. ideas that were meaningful and shaped the world. And in the short time that I have known you, you have undergone a transition. You have stepped up and out with your own ideas. Thanks, Jesse. I mean, yeah, the book for me, 
I have been in a long process, lifelong process, really, of stepping out. And I write about this at length and pride to go back to that fun sin, but a lot of fear being seen, a lot of trying to find other people to carry my ideas forward. So far, it has been incredibly validating, warm, nurturing, and it's felt very safe. Um, We'll see how I feel in a couple of months. But once you start, I'm sure you feel the same way too. Like you can't stop. There's no um, going back. I don't think I can go back. That was Elise Lunin. Check out On Our Best Behavior, out now wherever books are sold. And this week on Office Hours, let's get into it. What are the emotions or sins that trip you up? How can you reframe your reactions to situations and see yourself with a little more compassion? We'll talk about it all on Office Hours, 3 p.m. Eastern on Wednesday. We'll go live from the LinkedIn news page. And if you have any trouble finding us, send us an email to hellomonday at linkedin.com and we'll send you the link. Hello Monday is a production of LinkedIn News. Sarah Storm produces our show. It's engineered and mixed by Asaf Gadron. Our theme music was composed just for us by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Lolia Briggs, Wallace Truesdale, Kanaya Rogers, and Michaela Greer help us step into our best selves. Enrique Montalvo is our executive producer. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of original programming. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. I'm Jesse Hempel. We'll be back next Monday. Thanks for listening. I checked to see when the last time we had this had you in the studio was. And do you know that episode aired March 8th, 2020? Um, and when I Wild. think, right, when I think back to March 8th, 2020, it was like the day before I knew that life was about to be really, really different. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And the last time I saw you, I feel like was a momentous day for both of us in the sense that you, I didn't know this, but you were upstairs working on your book proposal. And on my way back from that trip, we were in Florida. I had my aha mid-flight about what I was going to write about. And here we are.